This is an ABC podcast. Recently, a woman at work was promoted and almost immediately she seemed to tense up and lose her way a bit. It was like she didn't trust the old version of her was good enough for this new responsibility. And her voice seemed to change and even the way she expressed herself seemed to change. She became a bit more serious and more powerful. The way I think about power is that it is often as simple as influence and the more power that you have or the more power you are perceived to have, the more influence you have on decisions or things that that are happening in an organisation. Once I had a leader in a performance review tell me, she said to me, Cassie, the problem with you is that you're so small, you lack any sort of gravitas. And if this was 1980, I'd be telling you to put on shoulder pads and red lipstick. Oh, yeah. Shoulder pads and red lipstick. If only power was that simple. But it ain't the 80s anymore. Hello, I'm Lisa Leong, and today on This Week in Life, we're revisiting a show from earlier this year. It's about something you can't see, you can't smell, but you can definitely feel. Power. Who has it? Who doesn't? How do you get some? And why, oh why, is it so hard to give up? With me is Professor Dacker Keltner, and he's studied power for the past 25 years. I asked, what drew him to power? Well, I think that Part of it was academic, which is that, you know, for your listeners, I'm a social psychologist. And even though we do our best to understand with science our social lives, we hadn't really understood power. And the great philosopher Bertrand Russell said that power is really the basic medium in which we relate to one another from the first moments of life to the end, right? It's just everywhere. And then the second is that, you know, when I looked out into the world, And I looked at how leaders behave and I looked at, you know, I had this really interesting experience where my parents moved to a really poor part of California when I was nine years old. And and I went from a middle, upper middle-class neighborhood to poverty or a poor area and the kids just behaved differently. And as I've thought about that over the years, I realized it was really about power, right? It was about how much power we enjoy in society and what it does to us. So, And what do you mean the kids acted differently? How did that relate to this um, idea of power? I went from a a school where the kids were really expressive and spoke up confidently and, you know, had a a sense of themselves or pride. And then, you know, just a couple of months later, I'm in a a classroom where the kids seem more self-critical, less willing to voice their opinions, less confident about themselves. And those are all qualities that relate to power, right? Confidence and freedom to voice your opinions and sort of a sense of yourself. So it, it just got me thinking about how deep power is in every facet of our lives. I've got quite a difficult relationship with maybe the word power. So I want to unpack a little bit what you mean by power. I guess I've been, I went to uh, an elite school in the US where I was taught about power. It felt very male, a lot of shoutiness about it. So can you tell me about the common misperceptions of uh, power and how you define it? (laughs) Yeah, thank you, Lisa. I mean, in a way, that's the hardest question, right? And it took us 25 years with lots of data, you know, when you, First of all, people often, power feels gendered. It feels kind of male, you know, CEO leadership style, um, Machiavellian. Sometimes people think of it 
And also, I will say, if you ask people, and we've asked thousands of people about this, they think it's about money or the prestige of your work. Those are all related, but but you could think of counterexamples to each of those instances of poor people transforming the world, right? People who have no institutional support, like Martin Luther King, changing history. So we define power as your capacity to alter the state of another person or other people. You can change their thoughts, their feelings, their actions, their pocketbook, their health. But that broad definition, power is your capacity to alter the state of other people, starts to illuminate places where it's not a male version of power or a Machiavellian version of power that's getting things done. Chief People Officer at Estimate One, James Law, agrees it's important to define power at work. I think the most important thing with power is to understand it, to ensure that it's not ignored, to define what impact someone's power can have on someone else. And I think to to ensure that everyone has some degree of power and that degree of power changes depending on your role in the organization. So for some people that might be the power to decide what you work on today or the power to articulate and be involved in decision-making on what your team works on on a longer basis. And then for other people, it's about setting a strategy for an organization, setting a vision. So I think the most important thing to remember is everyone has it and you need to define it so that people understand where it starts and stops for them. Power is not just psychological though. It also invokes a physical response. So what does it feel like? Dacca Keltner. So I ask people like, tell me about the last time you really felt powerful. And they may say something like, you know, a woman said in a leadership program, um, wow, I, I got to shift the course of this part of our budget and to this new kind of innovation. And a lot of people got excited about it. And it felt, I felt exhilarated and I felt, you know, confident and I felt free. I almost had tears in my eyes when I felt powerful. So what those observations tell us is what we found in the lab that power feels good. It's related to dopamine release. It's related to a better cardiovascular profile, right? And you actually feel empowered. And then the the other side of the equation is, is almost more compelling, Lisa. You know, all of us feel disempowered sometimes. You're at work, you're being bullied, you're not given voice on a team project. And what we have found, and this includes work by, you know, my student Jennifer Lerner, who's at Harvard with, and she studied managers is when you don't have power, you feel ashamed and self-critical and cortisol, the stress hormone is higher in your bloodstream and you feel fearful and vigilant. So they're really different psychological states. Can I pick up your term dopamine? So I'm wondering, does it make power addictive in any way? (laughs) (laughs) You know, I am embarrassed. I never thought of that. And I think you're absolutely right. You know, you look at our former president and, you know, people who just can't. One of the hardest things about power is at some point in your life, you need to give it up. And I actually think great leaders give up a lot of power. They give away power. And part of the difficulty in giving it up is dopamine. You know, dopamine is this neurotransmitter that sort of makes you go after rewards, makes you feel excited, enthusiastic. Mm. It's associated regrettably with cocaine and those kinds of addictions. And mobile phone use? Aha, yeah. (laughs) 
in space. <laughs> yeah, tons of that. And that's why it probably is hard to give it up as people, they, they feel the emptiness of not having that steady source of power, of dopamine. So I think this takes us to the crux of your great work, which is hmm. the power paradox. Yeah. So can you explain the power paradox? Because I think this might lead us to um, yeah. this idea of why we may abuse power once we've got it. You know, so Lisa, I was doing two broad lines of research as were people working in organizations. Like, how do you get power? How do you rise in the ranks? How does a school kid get the respect of their peers? How does a woman rise in a finance firm, right? And in today's complicated workforce where it's hard interdependent work, people rise in power by connections, by developing strong social networks, by inspiring, by empathizing, a lot of good stuff, right? And then I was doing this other line of work on the abuse of power. And what that was showing us is you can take any human being, uh, maybe with the exception of the Dalai Lama, you know, and <laughs> you give them a little bit of power over other people and they go crazy. You know, they yeah. start swearing and they touch inappropriately and they stereotype people and they take things that were meant for other people. They engage in unethical behavior at work. So that's the paradox, right? And I think it's one of the big paradoxes in life, which is we want to rise in power. We want to help people. We want to enjoy the benefits of power. But in enjoying it, uh, we undermine our own capacity for power. In fact, doesn't your research or the research that you've looked at show that people who rise to power, they're literally more likely to have affairs, drive inconsiderately and break rules that they ask other people to follow. Like that's fascinating, isn't it? My, one of my favorites is we study people who have a lot of privilege in the world. They are in a study and as they're leaving the study, they pass by this bowl of chocolates. <laughs> and it says, this is meant for the kids in this institute and the people with privilege just take a big handful of the chocolates. <laughs> you know, they're more likely to lie, to cheat, to swear. There's nice work in Europe showing that they have more fair affairs at work. They steal stuff at, from work. It's, it's an endless litany of the abuse of power. One of our listeners wrote in to say he'd experienced this. An example of power at work for me was when I was the music director and I'd, I'd fought hard to get that position. And, and one of the top line managers who I really admired for a long time, he would often come into the office that I would share with my direct line manager and a colleague on, on the same uh, management level, I guess. And he would address them and say hello and talk to them about things and not talk to me and walk out of the office. And it was really obvious that that was a thing that he was doing. And it relates to power because of the position that that person held and the influence they had over others at work and the industry in general. And it showed or it felt like that I wasn't as important as other people. Can you explain how power is given, not taken and who tends to be given power, Dakar? This is one of the deeper insights, I think, that it just is counterintuitive to think about where our power, how we get power, right? And we tend to think about, well, I get power by courage or, you know, charismatic acts or tremendous innovation at work, things I do. Um, and that's partially true. But Hannah Arendt, um, who probably is the most sophisticated thinker 
on power in my reading of the vast literature said, your power always resides in relationships and the network of people who decide to give you power, right? And that's fundamental to human social life, which is that when we're at work or we're working on a team or we're in a community, uh, it's the people who give you power depending on how you behave. And that's, a, that's the fragile process that, that keeps groups functioning well. And when it breaks down, you end up with autocratic leaders and you know, really problematic people running companies or bullies, et cetera. So people give other people power, studies show, if they um, are bold in their ideas, if they are sharing and willing to kind of brainstorm and pass on their own wisdom as opposed to hoarding it to themselves. They give them power if they are um, more empathetic. So, you know, groups in some sense are rational. They give power to people who advance the interests of the groups. And then the real challenge is when that person with power starts to act in impulsive Machiavellian Trump-like ways, can the group marshal the ability to undermine their power? So, Decker, what can we do to stop ourselves from abusing the power that we've been granted? So, what we know is when you gain power, one of the fundamental effects that produces the power paradox is you stop empathizing. You know, you stop listening. You stop imagining what other people are thinking. What other people think is so valuable to the strength of an organization. And so, but why, why do you stop empathizing? What's happening in that moment? Well, it's stunning. You know, part of it is neuroscience and Sukhvindir Obdi uh, in Canada has found if you randomly give people power, the empathy regions of the brain are deactivated. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's profound. But what's happening psychologically is you don't feel as dependent on others. You feel suddenly you feel like you're a master of the universe or a little arrogant and you, you don't have that keen edge of really relying and amplifying the, the strengths of others to make it in the world. And so that costs us, right? You're not tracking the information in the organization. You're out of touch with the people you're managing. So what we have to do to keep to have enduring power is stay close to empathy, right? Listen well, ask good questions, track where, where people are in their, their emotions at work, which is tough work, but it's a hallmark. On social media, we asked you, the TWL tribe, to tell us your experiences of power at work, and we got a huge response. I've seen plenty of amazing women be promoted from within, but what strikes me is how often, as soon as they're promoted, we see these women lose the amazing character traits that people have admired to instead try to emulate some of the power plays our male leader counterparts demonstrate. It I think I would like to see women relax into leadership and trust that who they are is enough. We do need to leave our egos at the door and that maleness at the door that we've kind of been coerced into believing is needed in leadership roles. I do have a positive story about power uh, in the workplace. It was the general manager at a radio station who would start the week on a Monday morning. He would come in and he would walk both levels of the radio stations um, that uh, were in the building and he would pop his head into every office and drop into the kitchen if there were people there 
chat to you, ask you how your weekend was, and then tell you to, to have a great week. And that was a really positive aspect of power in the workplace where the main manager would come around and, and treat you equally. So I really valued that. I also had a leader once who told me that the problem with me is that I care too much. And I think that really speaks to, again, this expectation as leaders that we exert power over others by kind of being maybe a bit cold hearted, a bit detached. And I think that that's a real shame. And I hope that more and more leaders are finding this power that comes more from a true connection and true empathy and a true caring, as opposed to relying on the power over that perhaps comes from being a little bit more cold, a bit more detached and relying on positional authority rather than relying on your capacity to inspire others. I'd love to know what are the early warning signs, apart from walking past the mirror and sort of going, you're looking good. (laughs) (laughs) Any other warning signs? Oh, yeah. So here's some warning signs. Like, are you swearing inappropriately? Um, Are you leaving stuff on a table that you expect other people to clean up or take care of, Uh, which is a, a finding? Are you touching people inappropriately? which is a common dynamic of the abuse of power. Are you interrupting people? Classic sign of the abuse of power is, and in fact, very low level abuse of power, but frustrating for people around is, you know, they're always interrupting. They stop paying attention to me when I speak. So those are some subtle early signs before you are stealing from the coffers and running away with the secretary. (laughs) And is there something that can be done at the organisational level to uh, implement when it comes to power? Yeah, it's so interesting. My colleague down at Stanford, Bob Sutton, has this book called The No, sorry, sorry about the language, but The No Asshole Rule. And it's based on this kind of research, like, wow, leaders start acting really offensively and problematically, and it costs everybody. And so his view, and I'll give you a specific example Uh, His view is you declare this is part of our culture, right? I was teaching women in leadership positions in in Kaiser and the Permanente Medical Group, which is the largest healthcare provider in the United States. These are women who run big budgets, serious work, life and death stuff. And I asked them, like, how do you constrain the abuse of power? And there's a lot of problematic power behavior in hospitals. And they said, you know, what we have adopted almost as our constitution or covenant, if you will, the no asshole rule. And Bob lays out like, here are 10 things you can't, you shouldn't do as part of your healthy culture. You know, don't swear, don't interrupt, don't shame people. Don't roll your eyes when someone's speaking. Don't harass, don't flame over email. A lot of very simple ethical guidelines that create a culture of healthy power. Now I want to look into, um, for someone in a position of power, you know, why should they care about this? Why should they bother um, changing their behaviour? And I actually want to look at powerlessness because in your book you really tease this out and how this is not good for anyone because you may, it may feel good at the time to um, take power away from people, but it has long-term effects. Can you, can you talk us through it? We began and you asked me like, why to get interested in this. And as I, for 25 years studying power, I kept returning to this childhood experience of, in the, you know, in the United States, we have a lot of economic inequality. And I went from a healthy neighborhood where my 
you know, nine-year-old friends would become doctors and teachers and journalists. And, and then I went to a neighborhood where kids didn't go to school, college, uh, have trouble getting out of high school. And what I noticed is they had health problems. They broke bones easier. Some died young. And we now know that is just one of the many effects of powerlessness when you are not empowered by people around you, is that it affects uh, regions of the brain that activate the release of cortisol, the stress hormone, which really sort of dysregulates, I'm sorry about that word, all of your body's systems like digestion and respiratory and immune system, and you die younger. And so the powerlessness issues are some of the most serious. When you go to the workplace, people who don't feel empowered by their bosses or their managers or leaders or colleagues have more stress, more cortisol, they feel fearful, they take more sick days. Cameron Anderson has nice work at uh, here at Berkeley that you actually are less creative and innovative in your work. So this is why leaders need to care about this profoundly is if you're leading in this coercive, fear-based, domineering way, the people around you are suffering physically and not doing their best work. I'd like to talk about um, the relationship between reputation and power, because uh, this, this is an interesting aspect of your work. Reputation is the esteem that other people have for you, right? And it's part of your earlier observation, Lisa, of like, the groups that I'm part of give me power. And my power is grounded in my reputation within a social network. And there's fascinating work showing if you have a strong, good reputation for being collaborative, having integrity, giving to the team, wherever you go in an organization, you, opportunities are presented to you, right? We would rather work with a person with a strong reputation. We'd rather give a part of a budget to that person or entrust them with a leadership position. Even when I go into a part of an organization where they don't know me as a person, if they know my reputation, my power will be determined by that. And so, you know, we have gotten interested in how do groups give or determine individuals' reputation? And they do it. <laughs> we got into trouble for this. You know, one of the ways in which we determine a person's reputation and standing in a group is through gossip, you know, where we, we all talk. <laughs> Really? I and I, I guess it happens, right? Uh, not me. <laughs> no, not me either, I must say. <laughs> no, I know. No one will admit that they gossip, but they're very ready to gossip. Yeah, gossip is simply, you know, it's a way in which we, you know, and politicians are obsessed with it. Early American politicians, Thomas Jefferson, used to keep catalogs of gossip about his opponents. Newspapers are kind of a form of gossip where we kind of spread ideas about other people's problematic behavior. But what we're doing with that is we are sharing with our group, like, does this person deserve power, right? Or are they going to screw people over, excuse the language, and just benefit their own selves? So gossip's a powerful tool for determining the reputation of people around you and, and ensuring that people don't abuse power. Thank you, Decker. You're welcome, Lisa. Social psychologist Professor Decker Keltner from University of California, Berkeley. And Decker's book is The Power Paradox, How We Gain and Lose Influence. And who knew water coolers had so much to do with it? 
Now, we had such a huge response from you, our audience, on this topic that we're going to come back next week with part two where we're going to dig a little deeper into gender and power at work. I was prosecuting a case against a particular guy and I walked out of court and all of the people were sort of lined up waiting for their cases to be heard. And I overheard the solicitor who was acting for the defendant say to his client, don't worry about your case. I've just heard the prosecutor's a woman. You know, I did the very best I could and um, it didn't go well for his client. But but the thing was, it was, um, it was a really interesting discussion about power because it was implicit in that conversation that gender was part of power. This Working Life is produced by Maria Tickle, who long ago decided to use her power for good, not evil, and would never steal chocolates from children. I'm Lisa Leong, and until next week, keep working. Well, now I feel really bad that I did steal chocolates from my daughter. (laughs) You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.